Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephanie Hickswa to our show. Dr. Hickswa is the Chancellor at Montana State University Billings in Billings, Montana. Hi, Stephanie. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me, Dave. It is absolutely my pleasure. So tell me about Montana State University Billings and why students select your institution. Oh, Montana State University Billings is really an amazing place. And we've been talking on campus that it's really the best kept secret. It was started as a teacher's college in 1927. So we're starting to prepare for our centennial celebration. And when I was growing up in Dillon, I, I remember, you know, the the focus on um, teachers college, even then the College of Education um, really focused on special education and all of the special ed teachers in Montana seem to come from Montana State University and Billings. But now we actually have five colleges. We have a college of business that that has grown um, to, to be included at our university. And we have a College of Science and Health Professions. And that college, as you might guess, is just burgeoning with the um, amazing growth in healthcare professions in, in Billings. So it's really a center for healthcare. And so we are expanding right along with them. We have our College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, which is key to um, many different majors. It's key to our general education on campus, but our, our history majors, for example, are finding all kinds of jobs in their fields. Our faculty are amazing. Our, our music program um, has geared its um, curriculum to focus on the business of music. So our students uh, in the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences are, are getting getting jobs out there. And then we have City College, which used to be the Votech, and it used to be the College of Technology. And now it is a comprehensive community college in the city of Billings. We offer general education, which helps support um, some of our various majors, but mostly what is at City College is our nursing program, as well as all kinds of trades programs. So we have the only auto tech program in our region. Um, you know, of course, MSU Northern is known for their diesel program. And so we have that auto tech program that we are known for. We have welding, we have machining, um, all kinds of um, trades professions that our students are sometimes getting jobs where they graduate. So I'm telling employers, hey, you got to help them graduate because they, they need to get those, those degrees. So at City College, we offer one-year certificates and associate's degrees, and then students can finish their bachelor's degree or start their bachelor's degree here at the university campus. We also have many students who transfer from various community colleges and tribal colleges in our area. And so they'll finish their first two years toward a bachelor's degree, and then they'll come to MSU Billings either um, virtually 
or in person to finish a bachelor's. And we have several master's degrees that I'm excited about. Um, as we look at our accreditation, we really have some high standards for um, accreditation in business and healthcare and education. And we are just rocking it with meeting those requirements. And again, it's the best kept secret. Nobody knows um, how well we're doing, it seems like, and those kind of things, because that doesn't make the news. But as the chancellor, I think it's really important that your audience knows um, just the, the high quality and rigor that, that we have. What many people do know is that it's affordable. So when you ask, why do students come to, to your institution? Yes, all of those academic um, qualifications are very important, but many come because we are so affordable. So they have the high quality academic access that's affordable and close to home. So many students choose us because of our price point. And then because we are smaller, um, students are choosing us because we have a close-knit community. And as I ask students, you know, why, why MSUB? And they keep telling me over and over that our niche is offering students opportunities that they may not get at a larger institution because they maybe don't feel like they're qualified or they're first generation students or they're a little more shy or a little more awkward. So we give students those opportunities um, to help them be able to be successful. We have a large non-traditional population as well. About 40% of our students um, ha have some time since they graduated from high school. They may be parents, they, they may be working full time and so they can they can live here in the region, they can work here and then graduate here while they're raising their families and juggling their, their really um, complicated lives. And then there are some students who come here because we have the only baseball team in the state and because we have, have the only division two NCAA athletics in the state. And so, that allows students to compete at a higher level um, than maybe they would have had the opportunity to otherwise. And so athletics is, is really the front door to our institutions. A lot of people get to know us because of our athletic program. And then once they walk through that door, they see what high quality educational programs that we have. Holy cow, that's a lot. You know, I know students who've gone to MSU buildings, and I tell you what I always hear is the class sizes. They love the class sizes because they're not that big. They feel so comfortable in them. Yeah, and our faculty get to know them, and they get to know them by name. Sometimes yeah. that's good, and sometimes that's bad. When they show up after skipping class for a couple of days, the faculty member knows it. Um, so I, I really do pride ourselves on um, that the more hometown close-knit feel and touch. And I think that's why students select us. So what's new at MSUB? So much is new. I've only been here a year and we are just, just going fast and furiously. Many people already know, and I'm really excited um, to give a shout out for our new um, Yellowstone Science and Health Building. I was talking about our, our College of Health Professions and Science and how that's just burgeoning with, with growth. 
um, we needed to update and expand that building. And um, it, it happened just as soon as I got here. And so I can't take any of the credit for it, but I got to be there for the ribbon cutting, which was which just so much fun. So those allied health profession programs are, are growing on our campus. We just got um, accreditation for our radiological tech program. And we're currently working, the Board of Regents has approved a sonography tech program. And so we're working on getting that implemented. Um, we just approved a banking certificate in our College of Business. If you get a business degree from Montana State University and you want to work in banking, we have a specific banking certificate. We're working with all of our majors to really make sure that students are getting some good work experience. So we're doing more and more internships all the time. Um, since, since I have come, we have launched a retention and graduation initiative across campus. And I'm really excited to tell you that our fall to spring enrollment this, this last fall to spring, that retention rate was 14% more than it was the previous year. Now, the previous year was COVID, and so COVID put a wrench in everything. But what we did was double down to make sure that the students who came in the fall stayed and enrolled in the spring for this spring's classes, and there was 14% increase. So now that we're in spring semester, we're working really, really hard to make sure that everybody registers for fall. What we know is that if students register before they leave for the semester, they're more likely to come back and be successful. And then that also shrinks the time that it takes for them to get their degree. So I'm really, really excited about how all of that plays together in and what's new at, at MSUB, what's exciting, what, what we're doing to help students. Because if students select us for all those reasons we talk about, but we don't make good on some of those promises and they get lost, they're not going to finish their degree. So we want to hold their hand to get them here. And then we want to hold their hand to get them out the door. And we want to do that as, as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So then I can celebrate um, their successes when I shake their hand at commencement, which is coming up soon. And commencement's my very favorite thing I get to do as a chancellor. Um, I know their stories. I know their hardships. I know they were, they were struggling with homelessness, that they were struggling with food insecurity, that they were struggling with um, death in the family and to see them make a difference in the whole entire um, rest of their life and their family's life by getting this degree when many of them are the first person in their family to earn a degree is just amazing. Well, can you talk a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to become the chancellor at MSUB? So it, it all goes into this, this student success that I was just talking about. I am a first-generation college student, and my high school counselor, when I was a junior, um, told me to probably not plan on going to college because I couldn't afford it. 
I was in college prep classes and I ended up graduating third in my class from Beaverhead County High School in Dillon. And I was discouraged from going to college. And I have made it my life's work to ensure that no student um, will be discouraged from getting a degree because of lack of financial resources or understanding of the system. And so that naturally led me to my, my very first job out of college was the transfer advisor at Flathead Valley Community College working with low-income, first-generation, high-risk students. And my path ha has just continued. Um, I, I love that work. I loved being an advisor. But what I found was that I wanted to affect more students. So I went on to run a larger program, and then I, I went on um, to run the Lincoln County campus of Flathead Valley Community College in Libby, and I was able to affect more students. Right around that time, I went to a leadership conference, which I didn't know at the time was, was boot camp for, for college president training. <laughs> they, they were looking at the next generation of college leaders because so many people were retiring out of the field. And I remember very distinctly um, doing this journal assignment as part of that um, leadership training. To, and they said, if not you, then who? If, if you're not willing to take on that leadership role, who is going to help students in the future? And they asked, think of the, the worst college president that, that you know. Can you do better? Well, I was 28 and all full of it. You know, I thought, well, sure, I can do better. Little did I know how hard this job is. But I, I was 28 and I set the goal of becoming a college president. I, I became a college president after I had finished um, my, my doctorate degree. You know, all of those kind of things have to go into it. But it wasn't even 10 years later. I was 37 years old and I was named the president of Miles Community College. I was there for seven years and made some great connections in Montana. And then um, Wyoming recruited me and I left um, for eight years and was the president at a college in Wyoming. And now I'm back in, in Montana and I am so thrilled to be back and so thrilled to have the opportunity to be the, the chancellor of MSUB. It is the perfect fit for me at this point in my career um, and with my own background fitting so many of our students' backgrounds. And as I talk about being a first-generation college student, I'm finding more and more of our staff and faculty also share that path. And so it's just the perfect match at the perfect time to be here. And I just feel so, so lucky to get to be a part of these students' lives at, at this point in their college career. You know, you're one of the few chancellors I know who were, was a president at a two-year college and now is a chancellor at a university. So, so tell me how your leadership style has evolved over the years and making that transition. So it's been a, a really good transition. Um, I started out, um, like I said, my very first job was in the community college world. And 
there are a lot of first generation and low income students that choose community colleges because of the price point. And what I realized by coming to the university is that it's, it's very similar in that respect. We have a good price point and, and our students are those same community college population. And so where my leadership has, has really evolved is um, being able to delegate more and trust more and have more people um, passionate and loving this work because this isn't a small institution. And I can't have my hands in, in every little thing anymore. And when I was an advisor, it was just me and that student. And so I could control um, that environment pretty closely. And when I was in Libby, we had a small team and, and we worked together every day. And I don't have that luxury here. So I've had to learn how to delegate. I've had to learn how to um, communicate my vision and passion and then allow people to do their jobs and do it well and, and inflect their own passion. And then the other thing I've had to learn is how to have a thick skin. <laughs> the, the job is really public and um, there's a lot of scrutiny, which is absolutely legitimate, but I can't, I can't take it personally and still be able to lead at the level that I need to lead so that our students can be successful because is it Taylor Swift? Haters going to hate, 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 hate. Um, and that's just going to happen. And that's good feedback. Um, but if you don't ask for feedback, you can't improve either. And so that's something that um, I've, I've gotten better at is asking for feedback and always trying to have a culture of improvement at the institution where um, I get to lead. And so that we're working together for the success of our students. Well, what's been the proudest moments for you so far at MSUB? Boy, there's there's just so many. And, and this time of year, you know, there's so many events and so many activities that I'm more proud, you know, today than I was yesterday because of whatever is happening today. But, but there have been some things that have happened in the last year that I, I'm really, really proud of. Um, one of those I already talked about was the um, retention and graduation initiative plan that we have rolled out that already we're, we're starting to see a difference in the data. But it's not the data that matters, it's the, the students that we've been able to impact as a result of some of those initiatives. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, because I started in the middle of COVID, I, I'm really proud that we've been able to come out of COVID and, and we're, that we're doing things better than that we were before. And that we've been able to look differently at some of the barriers that students were facing before COVID and, and to see they, they want some different things now. Um, so that has been um, really good to watch that process evolve and to be excited and proud of that. I already mentioned the opening of our new Yellowstone Science and Health Building that I had nothing to do with, but I was still very proud. That was a process that was 10, 15 years in the making. I remember being here on campus for a Board of Regents meeting when I was in Miles City. 
that was more than eight years ago. Um, and MSUB was talking about needing a new science building. And so seeing that open, being part of that ribbon cutting, what was just really huge. Um, getting to know the students and hearing their stories and that because of professor such and so they're graduating, because of an advisor, because of somebody in housing that made a difference. I'm really, really proud that the staff and faculty have that kind of a relationship with the students and that they're able to really, really make a difference in, in those students' lives. So for example, we were talking in our retention and, and graduation council. What can we do to, to move these um, graduation numbers up? And what we talked about was looking at small groups of students and making a difference in their lives. So Sunny Day Realbird is our Native American Achievement Center director. And we said to her, you know, Sunny Day, can you graduate three more students? She says, I can get more than three to graduate. And I was just talking to her the other day and, and it happened just because of, of her influence and, and her um, letting those students know what a difference a degree could make for their lives. So I'm so, so proud of the work that our faculty and staff do and that they're willing to bend over backwards and take evenings and weekends to do what it takes. But at the same time, you know, we got to watch out for burnout. A lot of podcasts that I'm listening to today are in relation to burnout. So we've got to pay attention and take care of our faculty and staff so that they can do the work that the, that the students need so that they can be successful. Well, you've worn a few academic leader hats. So tell me some of the lessons you've learned along the way. There are various lessons and, and some of the best lessons are the school of hard knocks. I, I've learned not to teach an online class when I need to be at the legislative session. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I know, right? I, I've learned that um, the best way to work with, with faculty is to encourage them and give them the tools that they need to be successful. Um, working with really smart people is amazing, but it's challenging because really smart people can think of everything. So I, I've learned lessons um, that they that faculty need to be given their head and just just let them run and let them um, go forward and and do the work. They're passionate about students. They know their field. It's not up to me to um, tell them what they should be teaching in their classroom. That they know how to do that. And so supporting them, giving them the resources um, is, is really, really important. I've also learned um, through the School of Hard Knocks um, more than I ever wanted to know about budgeting. <laughs> and that's been some of the hardest work. Um, I was in Wyoming when the economy started to go um, you know, more downward. It was a downward trend after the oil boom. And, and it was really hard to make some of those tough budget decisions. And, and like I was saying earlier, I had to get thick skin to, to learn. 
But what I've learned over the years is that my, my convictions and my values will help drive me. And if I can wake up every morning, um, maybe not feeling good about the decision, but knowing that the decision was something that I had to make for the betterment of our students in the institution, then I can live with that. And you never want to tell anybody that their job is going to go away, but you can always be a reference for that person and you can always treat them with respect and kindness. And, and I think that's important. And I just read Indira um, Nui's book about being the CEO of Pepsi. And she said that the day that she got named CEO of Pepsi, she came home and her mother asked her to go get milk um, because they were out of milk and she had two little kids. And she got frustrated because she wanted to say that she's the CEO of Pepsi and, and it's a big deal. And her mom said, check your crown at the garage. And, and as leaders, we have to stay humble. Um, it, it's okay if, if I'm picking up garbage on the sidewalk. I'm not, I'm not above that. I'm not, a, I'm not above um, taking out um, the trash or helping pick up after an event. We've, we've all got to stay humble. And, and if we're willing as an academic leader to do some of those not-so-fun jobs, other people um, see that and they, they help because many hands make light work. And um, that helps us all to focus where our focus should be. And that's that student success piece. Well, since you just went through this, what advice can you give new chancellors for those, those first three to six months? So the advice that I give a lot of people that I'm mentoring is not to confuse being a chancellor or a college president with the work that it takes to do it. So along the lines of check your crown at the garage, a lot of people think that when they become a university chancellor or a president that they will have all the power and that people will do whatever they say and, and they're, they'll, they'll get paid all this money and they're all enamored with patting themselves on the back. And I, and I really try to bring home the importance of the work that it is to be a chancellor. And sometimes that means picking up trash on the sidewalk. Sometimes that means um, cleaning up after an event. Sometimes that means consoling a, a student who, who's in your office yelling. Um, that's not for somebody else to do. So, so I really, um, have given a lot of people that advice over the years as they're looking at, at, at being a, a chancellor or a president and, and they'll say, wow, you know, the money is so good. And I'll say, but let's look at it per hour. <laughs> and, and I was just coaching somebody the other day and I said, make sure to look at what your life is gonna be like compared to your life now, the, the additional money maybe something that that isn't worth the time that you're going to give up because it is a lot of evenings and weekends and i love it but it doesn't it doesn't always fit other people and so you want to make sure that it's not work and then you go home and you have a life being a chancellor 
is your life. There is no such thing as work-life balance. It's work-life integration. Um, my husband and sons came to an event with me this last weekend, uh, and that was just part of, of our lives. My, my sons were two and three when I became a college president, and they've been hosting events with me um, for, for um, the last 15 years. So when I give advice, I, I really want to try to get to know the person and to see um, you know, where their goals are, where their passions are, and help them find their way as a new chancellor. And then the other thing um, I encourage is listening. So you said, you know, first six months or so, spend the first six months to a year listening to people. A lot of people asked me when I first came here, you know, what is your vision for the university? And I said, I'm listening to people to, it's not my vision. It's what is, what is our collective um, shared vision? And so if people can listen and hear those stories of students um, and get their head around what this job is, is all about, and it's all about students, then they can be very, very successful in these positions. Well, what do you think are the major challenges and opportunities that universities will face in the future? I think the, the pandemic has really positioned us um, for some exponential change and higher ed needed that. And so as we look at more hybridization of classes, hybrid work, um, we're calling it high flex on our campus where it's you know, really flexible. So students can, can come to class live on Monday and then on Wednesday, if their mom has a doctor's appointment in Hardin, they can access their class um, from the waiting room of the doctor's office on, on their phone. Um, so I think that is an opportunity because it changes the way we think about how education works. But it's a challenge because we have to um, have the technology in place. Our students have to be able to access it. I think we are going to be charged to be more and more accountable um, in, in this whole realm of people being consumers in ways that they've never been before, people paying attention to um, you know, what their elected representative's role is. And we are a publicly funded university. And so we have to pay attention to all of those kind of things. And so that's, it's certainly a challenge, but it's an opportunity to make us more transparent and make us look at things in, in different ways. I think our, our students are better consumers and that's an opportunity for us to do some things in a different way. Um, we're gonna have to change more quickly which is hard for us in higher ed. We can't just do things the way that we've always done, but we also can't not pay attention to history because um, then we'll, we'll repeat the um, you know, mistakes of the past. So we, we've got to honor our history. We've got to honor our institutional memory, but also be willing to, to push and look for opportunities out there, even if it's hard. And so I think the future is just really bright, you know, and I, and I liken it 
to Netflix. My faculty hate to hear me say that because it commercializes higher ed. But TV, when you and I were kids, you turned on and you had three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC. If the rabbit ears were positioned well, you know, and, and I lived 10 miles outside of Dillon and sometimes ABC didn't come in all that well. <coughs> but you adjusted. Well, now you don't even need live TV. You go to streaming services like Netflix. And if, if students are used to getting their entertainment in that way, they're going to want more and more of um, flexibility in options to get their education. And the traditional ways that we have always delivered education in the United States may not be accessible to students in Roundup, to students in Shepherd, to students on a Crow Agency. And so we, we have to be open to, to those ideas. So I'm really excited about the future. I'm really excited about how students and employers are going to change what their expectations are of us and how we will have to adapt as a result. I mean, you look at Southern New Hampshire University, University of Phoenix, um, Arizona State, they, they're killing it. And so we may not agree with some of their cookie cutter modeling and, and how they deliver, um, but they're doing something that's attractive to students. And so we got to pay attention. Yeah, I agree. You need to know your audience for sure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, some people believe that students lost ground academically during the pandemic. Is, is there anything that can be done to resolve that issue? You know, I think some students did and they stopped out and um, there's some ground that they need to gain, but some students really took advantage of it and, and got, got farther ahead. So, so yes, there's lots of things that can be done to resolve the problem. I think if students stopped out and haven't come back yet, encourage them to come back. The most expensive degree is the degree that is not finished. And in this economy, um, a lot of people are getting jobs and, and getting paid fairly well. Um, but there's no substitution for the value of a degree. And no one can take that degree away from you. And McDonald's may not be paying $20 an hour for a cook in billings for the next five years. So economies change. And if you have that degree in your pocket, um, you know, you've got a ticket to ride and, and nobody can kick you off. And so I think that's part of how you resolve some of that um, lost ground um, is not to stop out. Um, I know a lot of students took gap years between high school and college and that they're working and, and doing pretty well. Take classes. Um, start working toward that degree because you never know what might happen. Um, for excuse me, for students um, who lost ground academically in the way that you asked the question, they may need to take advantage of tutoring opportunities. And now that we are more more live and more in the classroom, um, we have to teach that whole group of freshmen that um, didn't know any different about college. 
that there's counseling services that are open and you can go in person. There's healthcare services that are open and you can go in person. There's a library that's open and you can go in person. There's advisors, there's tutors, there's clubs. And so all of those things that we all know college to be, many students didn't know and they did lose ground academically and socially. And so they can, they can get back and, and we're also reaching out so that they don't get lost after losing ground and, and looking at how their grades are and um, if they've been on campus and if they're connected and if they're involved in student organizations. And I think that will help reset um, expectations certainly, but also help reset that, that lost ground so that they can catch up and graduate on time. Yeah, great point. I think socially, that's I think that's the biggest thing. They just they just don't know. So getting them back in the loop of how to do this is probably the best advice I've heard. Exactly. Uh, what will be the role of the physical campus for universities in the future? You know, both for we'll, students, faculty, and staff. I think we'll always have a role for a physical campus. There is something about being on campus at noon and hearing those. Carillion bells ring and knowing that it's noon and that that feel of playing um, soccer out on the field or um, the kids are playing spike ball in, in the grassy areas and I, I love it. So there's something about a campus. There's something to be said about the residence halls and the experience of living with a roommate and navigating the roommate um, conflicts and, and situations, um, eating in a cafeteria, um, and not ordering Uber Eats or DoorDash to, to actually socialize. Um, so I think there will always be a need. Same thing with library. The library is more than just a place to store books that maybe you could get electronically. It's a, it's a place to study. It's a place to meet people and do research and find things that you wouldn't have found searching for it online. Um, so I think there will always be that place. Um, the college classroom is changing, of course. And in our new Yellowstone building, we implemented the furniture and technology thinking about the classroom of the future. So whereas some students may not come to class because, you know, their, their mom had a doctor's appointment in Hardin that they needed to take them to, um, there will always be students that crave that interaction and um, group work with their fellow students. There's, there's nothing better than being an undergraduate student and getting to do research hands-on with a professor who's, you know, nationally known for their research, which is amazingly high number of our MSUB faculty. And so we want to give students the flexibility and so that they always have access because I don't want a student not to be able to come because they don't have transportation and they live in Roundup. But I also don't want to see that physical campus go away. Um, we may use our buildings differently than what we are now, but there's a there's a place for the, the 
feeling that you get when you're in a college classroom, the smell of a campus in the spring, um, the, the feeling of coming on campus in the fall for the very first time. That's something that I don't want to lose. Yeah, camaraderie. It's always a good yep. thing to have. Yeah. Um, hey, here's a fun question. If you had some extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? I would give my employees a raise. Um, <laughs> faculty and staff are, are undervalued for, for what they do. And, and they, they definitely need to be compensated accordingly. Um, but as far as initiatives and, pro and, and projects, I would put um, a ton of money into retention and graduation initiatives. Um, and we got a grant from um, the Office of the Commissioner of Higher Ed to do just that. Um, it's called Montana 10, and we're gonna be rolling out 10 best practices to retain and graduate students. And we're accepting um, Montana 10 scholars right now to be um, a part of this pilot. And, and I'm really, really excited about that. And what I wanna do is scale it up. So I'm working with our foundation to um, find money to do that. Because what, what the research shows is that low-income and first-generation students can be successful in college. It's not the academics that they have trouble with. It's financing college. And so I would love to grow a scholarship endowment so that we could help those students with their tuition so money wasn't an object to going to school. So like my high school counselor said is, oh, don't consider college because you can't afford it. Um, you can't afford not to go to college. And so I figured out a way to do it. And I've been talking about it ever since. And it's been about 35 years now. Um, it's so important. And so if, if there were no strings attached and, and all that money, whether it comes from the state or, or a really generous donor, um, certainly scholarships would be the way to go. Well, I was happy to hear that you mentioned faculty and staff and money. I think I think you get extra brownie points today when they well, hear that. Well, you do so much work and you work you work so hard and you need to be recognized. Yeah. And especially as I look at the service industry economy right now, they are um, needing to pay more just to get employees and and it feels disrespectful to be paying my academic advisors who have such a huge role in student success less than that, or, or faculty who are doing research in their fields less than that. And, and so it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, if we can pay them more, then they will be more engaged and then students will be more engaged and then they will be more successful. And then as alumni, we hope they give back so we can then pay more yeah. and the cycle goes on. Well, here's my last question. Okay. Do you have any, do you have any uh, favorite books on leadership that would, that, that you would recommend to other academic leaders? There are so many. There's, um, you know, the, the typical transformational leadership and, and some of those. And then there's the good to great that are that are more non-academic that, that are out there in the field. Um, Brene Brown and Adam Grant are, are publishing some of those that are out there on work-life balance and um, 
vulnerability and some of those. So those are authors that I really like. But as I was preparing today and thinking about those favorite books, my very, very favorite is Kuzas and Posner, um, Encouraging the Heart. And they've done this whole series on leadership. They're, They're faculty members at a university. But Encouraging the Heart is one of my favorites because they realize that leadership isn't just a science, it's also an art. And if you can tap into somebody's heart as a leader, they will do whatever it takes to to help students. It's not just a job. If they can see that they're appreciated and that I as a leader or other managers um, see them um, for what they're doing and what they're working on, um, they they can move mountains. And so that's my one of my all time favorites. And then um, another one that I used in my cabinet retreat for my staff this last summer was Simon Sinek's um, What is Your Why? And Simon Sinek is another one, another author that's written um, several books. But looking at what your why is, because if your why is just to make money, then you can go to McDonald's and make $20 an hour and you can leave and, and go home and, and do other things. But if, if your why is closer to what mine is and, and to be passionate about student success and not just any student, but students with grit and, and helping them succeed or, or students that um, maybe nobody thought could get a degree, gosh, how rewarding is that? And if that's your why to get up every morning, you can move mountains. And so I love that one, that one also. So the encouraging your heart and what is your why are my, my two go-tos. Well, well, thanks for sharing that with us. Well, I think that's going to end our show today. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it, Stephanie. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's, it's good to talk to you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.